Over the past decade, the world has witnessed an increasing level of severe weather, with not only a greater number of hurricanes, tornadoes and typhoons, but also storms of greater intensity. Each year, it seems new records are set. With the impact of global warming increasing, it is likely that the trend will continue. It has always amazed me how, despite our advanced communications, the efforts of international organizations and our ability to respond to a crisis with resources unheard of in the past, we too often struggle to cope. One only needs to look at New Orleans, which still hasn't fully recovered from the impact of Hurricane Katrina, which occurred in 2005. Imagine now what it must have been like years ago before all the technological advances we depend upon, storm tracking systems and early warning systems, and simple things like bottled water. One such crisis occurred in 1931 and will be the focus of this podcast. I'm Dr. Scott McLean, Director of Explore History, and I will be bringing you this most interesting story. The account you're about to listen to is based upon a report written by a Mr. F.R. Ellis of the firm of Franco and Ellis Solicitors of Belize, and he's sending this report to the Law Union and Rock Insurance Company. The document is typed, nine pages in length, and written by someone who survived the hurricane which hit Belize in 1931. This storm was the deadliest in the country's history. It began on September 6th, with the worst of it occurring on the 10th. It is estimated that winds of up to 215 kilometers per hour, or 135 miles per hour, hit the capital, Belize City. However, as we have seen time and time again with recent events, it is not just the high winds that are to be feared. Most damage is caused by high tides, storm surges, which create mass flooding. Over the course of four days, much of the city was destroyed. Some streets were completely washed away. It is estimated that 2,500 people were killed. However, like with modern disasters, it is the long-term effects which cause the greatest problems. The destruction of crops. In this case, many plantations far inland were destroyed when the river backed up and flooded. And the basic infrastructure of roads, bridges, hospitals, schools, and homes. These can take a huge number of years to try and fix, to try and rebuild. And so because of this, we see uh, just a constant long-term social, economic, and political impact. This account is of great interest as it was written by someone who witnessed it firsthand. As well, it was someone that was very articulate and committed to providing as accurate an account as possible. I hope you find it of interest and relevant to understanding many of the crises that are faced by many today. So here we go with the source. Across the top of the page, it says, copy of the account of the hurricane given by Mr. F.R. Ellis of the firm of Franco and Ellis Solicitors, Belize, to the Law Union and Rock Insurance Company. Although you've doubtless read several accounts of the terrible disaster which has befallen our city, perhaps you'll be interested in a direct narrative from us. On the morning of Thursday the 10th instant, we were warned by radio that tropical depression was approaching Belize from a southeasterly direction, that a hurricane could be expected to strike the city at about 1 p.m. During the whole of the morning, there were strong gusts of wind and sleet from every direction. Visibility was extremely poor, and generally speaking, weather conditions were such that the inhabitants had never seen before. Between 1 and 2 o'clock, the wind gently increased in intensity and blew with increasing force from the north-northeast. The zinc from the houses began to tear off, and some of the more flimsy buildings tottered and fell. The streets were utterly unsafe for pedestrians, and the rain came down with such torrential vigour, notwithstanding the high wind, 
that it was impossible to see more than a few yards. Everything inside and outside buildings became soaked. In the meantime, the waters of the sea were receding. After about an hour and a half, the storm subsided suddenly. One might say instantaneously. The sky cleared, rain ceased, and the sun came out. But the atmosphere was heavy and almost unbearable. Notwithstanding the general warning that the hurricane would return as soon as the center had passed, thousands of people left their homes and wandered about to see the damage. By this time, although some hundreds of houses had very badly damaged roofs and the streets were full of debris, probably not more than 20 or 30 houses were down, and out of 50 or 60 vessels in the harbor, we do not think that more than two or three were wrecked. Within five minutes of the calm, however, the receding waters turned, and a tidal wave estimated by old and responsible seafaring men to be at least 30 feet high outside the reef descended upon the defenseless town. The water rose with extreme rapidity, breaking over the sea defenses at a height of 10 or 12 feet, and at varying heights over other parts of the, of the coast north, east, and south of the town. Soon hundreds of people were struggling through the swirling waters to get back to their homes. By the time the water had reached a height of four to five feet, the center passed, and with a roar only comparable to the so-called crack of doom, the real hurricane was upon us. The recording instruments broke down after recording a velocity of 95 miles per hour. The wind was, of course, in exactly the opposite direction to the first blow, and the ensuing havoc is beyond our power to adequately describe. The corrugated iron roofs and huge beams and rafters were flying through the air with the apparent speed of bullets. The whole town collapsed like a house of cards, and dozens upon dozens of vessels were dashed against the shore, carried over the coastline, and deposited amidst the wrecked houses. The water began to go down within an hour of the second blow, but very slowly. The water had, of course, undermined the foundations of the posts in which nearly all our houses stand, this combined with the terrific force of the hurricane made it impossible for the buildings to stand the ravage. Hundreds of houses, or what was left of them, were moved from their lots, and as the water settled, they too came to rest. The full force was spent sometime after four o'clock, but the wind continued with the force of a gale, with intermittent, stronger gusts for nearly two hours afterwards. The water was then waist high, but this did not prevent people going about to see what had happened. You have, no doubt, seen the photographs which were subsequently taken, but with due regard to the faithful recording eye of the camera, the scene as it appeared to the eyes of those who had gone through it could never be adequately reproduced. Not one single building exists that is not damaged to a large extent. It is no exaggeration to say only 15% of the buildings is repairable. On the western side of the town, the hurricane swept with the force of the tornado, the suburbs of Yarborough and Mesopotamia were cleaned, as with one gigantic scythe. The rain fell incessantly the whole of the night, with not a single dry spot in town, and the dawn came as a wonderful relief to a night of unmitigated horror. With the dawn, the rain also ceased, and the water had entirely gone. The population poured out into the streets everywhere, but as yet no realization that anything had happened save a vast amount of material damage. The volunteers were called out, extra volunteers enrolled, hundreds of special police sworn in. The police and fire brigade mustered an attempt made to clear some of the most important streets to allow the passage of working parties. These parties began to find bodies under the wreckage which were brought to a central point for identification and immediately rushed to the cemetery for the interment in a huge trench which had been dug by convict labour for the purpose. 
During the whole of Friday and part of Saturday, these bodies were being brought with ever-increasing rapidity, and although it was at first estimated that maybe a 100 had been killed, the bringing of bodies and identifications soon had to be stopped because it was realized that in the devastated area, there were not dozens but hundreds of bodies, and drastic steps had to be taken immediately to cope with the danger. Accordingly, every available fatigue party was put into work, and after making sure that there were no living human persons in the wreckage, a holocaust was made of the devastated area in Mesopotamia, and hundreds of bodies burnt where they lay without any attempt at identification or registration. Hundreds of people took refuge in the churches, which, with one exception, all collapsed, causing the immediate death of goodness knows how many people. By Tuesday, it was estimated that the death roll was 1,500 souls. Although it will be many months before an accurate check of the missing can be made, it is universally believed that not less than 2,500 persons have perished. By 8 o'clock on Friday morning, radio communication had been established with the outside world. Airplanes came in that day with supplies and doctors from Guatemala, Honduras, and Mexico. A most welcome relief to our four medical practitioners who have been working incessantly at very high pressure. Dressing stations were established all over the town and the injured attended to. The injured, however, only a small portion compared to the dead. The huge death roll is, of course, accounted for by the tidal wave, drowning being the most probable cause of 90% of the fatalities. The United States gunboats, the USS Swan and the USS Sacramento, were rushed to the scene where they arrived on Saturday. Landing parties appeared in view of the enormity of the disaster, comparative calm prevailed. It must not be forgotten that thousands of cases of liquor were strewn about the streets from the bonded warehouses, but the ensuing orgies were not as bad as they might have been. HMS Denai, then at Barbados, rushed to us under forced draft, but did not get here till late Tuesday or early Wednesday. This ship immediately took charge, and the Americans went away, leaving an American Red Cross party behind. Whilst dozens of bodies are being found daily, it is believed that the danger of epidemic has passed. The whole town is busily engaged in clearing away the foot of oozy slime deposited by the tidal wave, making temporary shelter for the thousands of homeless. If you will realize that the total population of this town is only 16,000, the catastrophe can be assessed at its true value. We are in no danger of starvation, food supplies having reached us promptly. The medical facilities appear adequate, and although the government have had to enact measures, to conscript labor, the cleaning up is proceeding with as much dispatch as could be expected under the circumstances. The whole town being utterly and completely demolished, there is, of course, no attempt at normal functioning. There are no courts of law, and naturally all payments of every nature have ceased. One cannot collect rents from tenants whose houses are gone. The loss on mortgage investments is absolute. What will happen in the future cannot be prophesied, except that undoubtedly at least half of the town will have to be rebuilt. The devastated areas at Yarborough and Mesopotamia are nothing but funeral pyres and unsafe for rehabilitation. Arrangements will be made for financing that we cannot tell. No spontaneous fires occurred. By the irony of fate, the two or three people who carried hurricane insurance have suffered the least damage. You will, of course, realize that for the next few months, there will be no premium income. It is surmised that an Atlantic upheaval has shifted the course of the Gulf Stream 75 miles westward, and that this fact has brought us into the hurricane zone, from which we have hitherto been considered immune. It is reasonable to suppose, therefore, that every few years we will have this unwelcome visitor, although probable with nothing like the force of the one which has just 
spewed death and destruction so lavishly. We understand that Washington is satisfied that the wind blew 150 miles an hour. We've spoken with dozens of old-timers who have experienced hurricanes and their devastating effects in all parts of the West Indies, and who state that this calamity is far, far worse than anything they have seen. The United States Marine Guard, which was at Managua during the earthquake, there frankly stated that Managua was a picnic compared to our situation. We wish you to take under advisement immediately for the sake of future business the issue of a combined fire and hurricane policy. Unless hurricane insurance can be affected at a reasonable rate, investors will not advance mortgages and the rebuilding of the town will become impossible. We should be glad, therefore, if the fire offices committee will take the most urgent measures to deal with this situation in order that capital may be reassured and reconstruction begun. The building society can safely be said to have lost more than half its invested money. Everybody in the town is undoubtedly ruined. The more one had to lose, the more one lost. In spite of this, a spirit of optimism prevails, based on the hope that the outside world will exhibit that spirit of generosity which it has always done in cases of serious disaster, and come to our help. Our office being on the ground floor has received the damage that could be expected with the slimy flood, but whilst our records are in a horrible condition, we shall be able to carry on. So that ends the document, brings us to its conclusion. What can we take from this? Well, I think hopefully you will agree that it's a very, sounds like a very accurate account. It's very detailed, very well written. And you can see that it's somebody that is writing to the insurance company, to somebody that has interest in Belize City, uh, interest in what had happened. It goes through sort of point by point on the damage that has been caused on the level of devastation, and that how virtually everyone, all inhabitants, have been ruined by this, rich or poor. Everybody was wiped out. Everybody was going to struggle. And that the death toll was far higher than what was first anticipated. But there is a sense of optimism. And I think it's interesting how he closes out the letter, really focusing on the long-term issues. The fact that it's going to be difficult for people to get insurance uh, for hurricanes. And if they can't get that, well, then people may not get mortgages. If they don't get mortgages, there's no investment. And so this is going to have a long-term impact in investment in police if it's not um, dealt with appropriately. And so this is the real concern. They not only need to rebuild and get people's lives back in order, but they have to look at the long-term welfare of the country, how it's going to respond over the next year or two and the next few decades how there's going to be investment and things will continue to move forward. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you found it a very interesting document. I find it very captivating and I quite like documents like this. This is kind of a one-off that most people would never get to read. It's not the kind of account which was going to be out there. You'd have to piece together by looking at different newspaper accounts. Here's one in many ways is unique and that makes it all that much more interesting and valuable to understand. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, always putting things up, lots of photos and all kinds of things and documents which I'm regularly getting hold of. All the best.